So our scripture reading is Revelation 19, and we're going to read the verses 1 through 10. Revelation 19, 1 through 10. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are just, true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the and, and from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt, and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we're going to focus on the marriage supper of the Lamb. The world, united in its opposition to God, is symbolized in Revelation, the last few verses, the last few chapters, symbolized as a prostitute. In the part that we read this morning, the prostitute is judged, and the multitude in heaven rejoices and praises God, and then comes what God has been working toward in his whole plan of salvation, the marriage between him and his people, the marriage between Christ and his bride. Now, the Bible often uses the imagery of marriage to depict the relationship between God and his people. The imagery is used in different ways in different places to make different points. And because of that, you can't come up with a systematic account of all the references that will give you a coherent account 
of the marriage relationship between God and his people. The key is always to consider each reference in its own setting and not worry too much about how one passage relates to all the others. In many cases, the imagery is that of God and his people already married, but then in other cases, it's more like an engagement with the marriage still in the future. The point is that the Bible's not intending that all of these passages relating to this subject will be consistent with each other, and we have to learn what each passage is teaching us. In the Old Testament, the marriage imagery mostly had to do with God's love for his people and their spiritual adultery in their idolatry. Jeremiah 31, 32 says of Israel that she broke the covenant that he made with her, and God says, quote, though I was their husband. The greatest use of the marriage imagery in the Old Testament applies to, when it applies to God and his people, is to highlight God's love for his people and his faithfulness, his steadfast love, and Israel's unfaithfulness on the other hand. But one of the things that it does do regardless is that it shows us that the kind of love that God has for his people and the kind of relationship that he desires for his people is demonstrated by using that kind of imagery. In Isaiah 62, 5, God promises his people that in the future, he says, quote, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In the New Testament, there are a number of references that have to do with the relationship between Christ and his church, which use the symbolism of bride and, and bridegroom, or even sometimes of husband and, and wife. Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom, but he never explicitly refers to the church as his bride. But in 2 Corinthians eleven two, Paul says to the Corinthians, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And then there is the key passage, which is Ephesians 5, which compares relationship of a husband and a wife with the relationship between Christ and the church. And Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 go so far as to compare the one flesh relationship in marriage with the relationship between Christ and the church, so that in that passage, the church is viewed as married to Christ. And now in Revelation 19, there is a great wedding celebration, the marriage between Christ and his church. And that's why I say again that you can't get one coherent picture by trying to integrate all the passages that compare relationship between God and his people with marriage. You have to take them each on their own, discern what each one is teaching about the relationship between God and his people. So there is a sense in which the relationship between Christ and his church is like that between a husband and wife, in that the the one flesh union finds its ultimate fulfillment in the relationship between Christ and his church. But there's also a sense in which the relationship between Christ and his church is like that of a bride and a bridegroom on their wedding day. 
And that's what we have in this text in Revelation 19, which is about the wedding. The church then is the bride of Christ, and in these verses, Revelation 19, they describe the wedding. But one of the things that all the verses in Scripture that describe the relationship between God and his people using the imagery of marriage or a wedding shows, what what it all shows is that God's desire uh, is for his relationship with his people to be a relationship of the closest possible intimacy. Marriage is meant to be the closest relationship between human beings. It's never all that it could be, but even when it is good and not perfect, it is still a very close relationship and results in great joy and satisfaction and fullness. And God uses that relationship to describe the kind of relationship that he wants to have with his people. Actually, it's the other way around. God created marriage so that we might have some idea of what he has in mind for his relationship with his beloved people. It's an amazing truth. God desires a a close relationship with his people. In In a good marriage, the partner is the number one person among all other people. God is to be the number one person in our lives, and he loves his people with that same kind of exclusive, faithful love. Marriage relationship is about commitment to one another. Relationship between God and his people is a covenanted relationship, as is marriage. Marriage is about deep knowledge, a deep knowledge and appreciation for the partner. The relationship between God and his people is about knowing and being known. It is about loving and being loved. There's a lot of joy and satisfaction in marriage, and so it is in an even greater way in our relationship with God, which is why it is possible to be single and still experience fullness of life. And that, that is not, to, to, to say that is not to minimize how hard it is for some people to be single. Very few people choose to remain single. And we who are married long for all our singles who want to be married to find a husband or a wife, And yet it is a fundamental biblical truth that our relationship to God is more precious than any other relationship in life. A single person who loves God and who is loved by God has a far richer life than a married person who does not know God. The point of the marriage symbol for the relationship between God and his people, the point of that whole imagery is that our relationship with God is the relationship that gives us the fullness of life. Once Jesus returns, human marriages will be over. When we experience the ultimate blessedness after this life is over, 
none of us will be married to any human person. We'll be married to Christ. And that relationship will give us the fullness of life and joy. In that relationship, we will experience the ultimate joy and fulfillment and contentment. We will have relationships with other people, but Jesus will be our husband. Now, the idea of being married to Christ may be troublesome, may have some troublesome aspects to it for guys. Jesus was a male. Guys are males. Marriage seems to be the wrong image. Clearly, we have to make some adjustments. When human, um, when human marriage finds its fulfillment in the, in the marriage between Christ and the church, we will no longer be sexual beings in the same way that we are sexual beings now. Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two thirty, For in the resurrection they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. We'll still be male and female because our gender is a fundamental part of our identity. But when it comes to our sexuality, we will be very different. Whatever that means... It's clear that the relationship between Christ and his church is not a sexual relationship, even though the sexual relationship on earth points toward it, which is, you have to make the adjustments. Our relationship with Jesus now already has nothing of sex in it, even though we relate to him as males and as females. There can be intimate love and adoration and worship and service and intimacy without any sexual aspect to it, and so it will be in heaven. The church is the bride of Christ. That has nothing to do with sex, but it has everything to do with the intimacy and unity that sex points to. The passage that makes the connection between the sexual relationship between husband and wife and Jesus and the church is Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, which says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. That is, the one flesh mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it, the one flesh, refers to Christ and the church. So the key point here is that the one flesh relationship unites a husband and a wife. The two become one, and that points to the way in which Christ and his body are one. Christ and his people are one body. The ideas of union with Christ and the church as the body of Christ are very prominent ideas in the New Testament. <clears throat> and it is this that the one flesh relationships in marriage points to. So what the Bible does then is use a relationship that is sexual, which is human marriage, as a symbol for a relationship that is not sexual. It even uses the sexual relationship itself as a symbol for a relationship that is not sexual, that is the relationship between Christ and his people. So not everything transfers from the symbol to the reality that is symbolized. The idea of 
a husband and wife being one in their sexual relationship is a symbol for Christ and his people being one body in a non-sexual relationship. And we need to make that transition properly in order to understand the way in which the Bible uses the imagery of marriage to teach us things about the relationship between Christ and his people. The relationship between Christ and his bride is not a romantic or a sexual relationship, but it is like the marriage relationship in some ways, but not in all ways. So let's look at the ways in which Revelation 19, uh, 6 through 8, uses the imagery of a wedding to teach us about the relationship between Christ and his church. The setting here is the worship in heaven. John hears the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. The language describing this worship conveys the idea of crescendo. All the world history has been building up. And that is reflected in the volume and the intensity of this song. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Notice the reference to the reign of God. The wedding between Christ and his church takes place after the reign of God has been fully established. The wedding between Christ and his bride takes place once the great prostitute has finally been judged. In the plan of God, the relationship between Jesus and his people is consummated once all opposition to God has been destroyed. In the current situation, the church lives in the context of the world in its opposition to God. And in that context, the church is making herself ready for the wedding day. While the opposition is still active, the bride of Christ faces that opposition and suffers because of it. And allowing the church to live in that context is part of the way that Jesus is preparing his bride for the wedding day. And it is only when God brings his kingdom in its fullness by the final judgment of the great prostitute that the day has come for the wedding supper. The marriage of the lamb is the occasion for rejoicing and exalting and giving glory to God. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Weddings are times of celebration. They're joyful occasion. The joy is rooted in the joy of the couple who is getting married. This is a day for which they have been longing for most of their lives, long before they even knew each other. They lived in hope of one day meeting someone, falling in love, getting engaged, and then finally getting married. And then once they met and were engaged, they've been looking forward to the day 
of the wedding itself. That anticipation is focused on the wedding itself, but the wedding itself is a joyful occasion because of what comes after, because of the married life that follows. Weddings are joyful occasions because marriage is such a deep and a wonderful blessing. And this is one of the points of this description of the marriage of the Lamb with his bride. It is described as a great and joyful celebration. And at the heart of that celebration is giving glory to God. That's also in the case with Christian marriage in the here and now. The joy of a Christian marriage celebration is not simply because we're rejoicing with the couple who is getting married. It is a celebration of God's goodness in creating marriage in the first place and in and his goodness to this couple in bringing them to this marriage. Like all the blessings that we receive from God, a huge part of the enjoyment of them is that we receive them as expressions of God's love and of his goodness toward us. The joy in a Christian wedding is in celebrating the gift of marriage and the gift of this marriage as expressions of God's love. And so this description of the marriage of the Lamb and his bride highlights the joy and the worship in the rich relationship between that Christ and his bride will enjoy forever. There has been great longing for this day. The joy is expressed that is expressed is related to the fulfillment of the longing of the people of God through the ages to love and to be loved in a way that has never been possible in this life. That longing is expressed in a verse like Psalm seventy-three twenty-five, which says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The relationship between Christ and his bride in the new creation will be so rich and so delightful that the wedding will be a time of great joy, rejoicing in the relationship and in God's provision. This will be the fulfillment of all our longings. The relationship, the marriage relationship on earth gives us a sense of how rich and delightful and fulfilling a love relationship can be. And one of the great purposes of marriage is to give us a sense of how rich and delightful and fulfilling it will be to be married to Jesus. Listen to the way in which Zephaniah describes the relationship between God and his people on the day of fulfillment of God's promises. Zephaniah 3, 14 and 17. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. One of the great things about marriage is that the one we love loves us back. We delight in one another. The marriage between Christ and his church, there is our delight in Christ, in his kindness, in his gentleness, in his power, and in his goodness. But there's also Christ's delight in us. 
One of our great needs as human beings is to know that we matter. In order to be whole, we need to be loved and valued and delighted in. Christ delights in his bride. He loves her like no other. He cares for her. He values her. We matter to him in a way that is far more profound than the way a wife matters to her husband or a husband matters to his wife. So the text speaks of the joy of the celebration of the marriage of the lamb and his bride. The second thing that it emphasizes is the preparation of the bride for the wedding day, for her bridegroom. And this too is rooted in what we know about weddings. Brides, human brides, tend to put a lot of effort, planning, time, money, into being as beautiful as possible for their bridegroom on their wedding day. There are many different customs surrounding weddings around the world, but one commonality is that the bride has on a dress the like of which she will never wear again. And some of us tend to mock the hoopla around weddings, and indeed they can be ridiculously expensive and extravagant, and yet the imagery here in our text, assumes that it is right and proper for a bride to put a lot of effort into clothing herself and being as beautiful as she can be for her bridegroom on their wedding day. The text is using that very idea to describe the bride of Christ at the marriage of the Lamb. Verses 7 and 8, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The beauty of the bride as she presents herself to her bridegroom is not a physical beauty, but a beauty of purity, of holiness, of righteous deeds. It's the beauty of a life lived according to to God's design. The passage in Ephesians 5 describes this from the perspective of Jesus' love, which is expressed in enabling the bride to be all that she can be. Husbands are told to love their wives, quote, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now here the analogy breaks down a little. It's probably not a good idea for a guy to think of his girlfriend as someone that he has to redo, remake so that she will fit his idea of what he wants a wife to be. Now, it's true Christians are to love their, yeah, Christian husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. But the focus here is on Christ giving himself in order to sanctify the church. And certainly husbands are to help their wives in their sanctification 
But if that is going to be effective, the reality of giving himself for her better be prominent. But the idea works perfectly when it comes to Christ and the church. Christ is the divine bridegroom. The church by nature is vile in her sinfulness. The only way there can be a wedding at all is if the bridegroom gives himself up for her in order to cleanse her, in order to take away her sinful blemishes. And the engagement period is a period of Christ progressively sanctifying the church and the church cooperating with with what her bridegroom is doing by seeking to grow and living the life that is pleasing to him. There are similarities between the relationship between Christ and the church and human marriages, but there are differences as well. Human husbands are not divine, but the bridegroom, Christ the bridegroom of the church is. Now the text in Revelation 19 refers both to what Christ does to make his bride ready and what the bride does to make herself ready. Verse 8 says, It was given her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And when the text says, It was given, it is referring to what God has done. God in Christ gives the fine linen garment bright and pure. And that's referring to the same thing that Ephesians 5 is talking about when it says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for to make her holy and pure. The bright and the pure garment is given to the, that is given to the bride, it symbolizes both justification and sanctification, both the gift of forgiveness and the ongoing gift of the Holy Spirit in growing the church toward holiness. In terms of the imagery of the text, the bride then is given the bright and pure garment of forgiveness and renewal of life, but then she is very much involved. She makes herself ready by putting on the garment that Jesus has given her by performing the righteous deeds that make up the garments. And the emphasis in this context is on the bride making herself ready for the wedding on the basis of what God has first given to her. And the idea of a human bride making herself ready for her wedding conveys the sense of the desire of the bride to be beautiful for her husband. That's a very great motivation. Human brides tend to be very passionate about how they will look for their bridegroom on their wedding day. And that passion is the point of this part of the passage. It's about the church being passionate about making herself ready to be presented to her bridegroom by means of righteous deeds. One of the great changes that salvation works in us is that we love Jesus and we want to please him. John said in, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in uh, Colossians 1, 10, uh, 
Paul prays that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Revelation 19, 7 and 8 gives us a picture in the light of which to see our own efforts to grow in bearing fruit of every good, in every good work. When we, do our, when we do that, we are making ourselves ready to be presented to the Lamb as his bride. When we seek to please God in the way that we live, we are clothing ourselves in preparation for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We want to be beautiful for our bridegroom and the righteous deeds of the saints is the fine linen, bright and pure, that will be a delight for our bridegroom to see. The garment has been given to us in salvation, but it is also something that we must put on, and we do so in the same spirit that earthly brides dress themselves on their wedding day. It's a powerful motivation to give ourselves to perform righteous deeds, to nurture the kind of character that is inclined to perform righteous deeds. This is not about earning salvation. This is about love. It is about the love that the bride has for the bridegroom. It is about wanting to be pleasing to him. There is a sense, of course, in which we are already pleasing to him because he has cleansed us from our sins and has given us the wedding garment of his righteousness. But one of the great results of that is that we want to please him. And so we're motivated by love to make ourselves ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that shows the flexibility of this kind of imagery. In one verse, we're the bride. In the next verse, we're the guests. doesn't matter. The point is the blessedness of those who are invited to be there, the people of God, the people who remain faithful to God. Now, this is the fourth beatitude in the book of Revelation. I'll read the other three. We'll see them all four in their context. So, Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then Revelation fourteen thirteen. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And Revelation sixteen fifteen. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And then finally, 19.9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Finally, for so far, there are a number of beatitudes to come. The world has its allurements. Following Christ involves struggle and suffering. The book of Revelation assures us that the way of blessing is the way of faithfulness. 
in the midst of the struggles. And we are sustained in the struggles by the hope that is set before us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this rich imagery and the rich relationship to which it points. We thank you for its riches in our marriages in this life and for the way in which they give us some sense, at least, of the, the, the wonder of our relationship with you and how that will be consummated in the life to come. Thank you for this passage that we could look at and for the, the way the imagery is used and for the message, for the rejoicing that is so evident in these verses. And we pray that we may, that we may enjoy that rejoicing even in terms of anticipation as we think of what we now already experience as the bride of Christ, but we think about what is yet to come. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless uh, the part of the verse about the bride making herself ready to us, that we may think of the, the way in which human brides are so passionate about making themselves ready, and we pray that that may transfer to us, that we may have that same zeal, that same passion to make ourselves beautiful for our bridegroom. Thank you, Lord, for the richness of of our relationship with you now already and the fulfillment, the fullness of what we can anticipate in the time to come. And we pray that it may be a great encouragement to us, that there may be a real uh, longing for it and that it may be uh, strengthen us in the struggles that we face in the here and now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.